we're going to jump into, a, I think, a really important conversation here today. But before we do so, I want to just take a second. This is Memorial Day weekend, and tomorrow is Memorial Day. Um, zoom back with me in my life. As I was growing up, I don't know if anyone had an experience like this, but we had, growing up, we only had two TVs in our house. And my parents, like, had, had rule over the one in the living room right? And so my sister and I would fight over the one in my parents' room, and we would watch, like in the evenings, we would watch, and we would lay on, this will date me even more, we would lay on my parents' waterbed, right? Anyone? (laughs) Yeah. And watch, uh, (laughs) normally we'd watch uh, whatever show, and then at that point, we like weren't allowed to watch The Simpsons, so we would like listen at the door and wait for mom and dad to be watching their show and turn it to that, because we were rebellious punks back then. Not a lot's changed. Um, but one of the things I can remember, I can envision it in my mind as I'm laying on that waterbed, uh, the TV's in front of me, on the wall is a, is a big framed, um, one of the things I can see is a name, right? And the name on there is Prentice B. Boykin Jr. And that is the name of my dad's best friend in high school who was killed in action. And my uncle did a very honoring and loving thing when he went to Washington, D.C., and he found um, Prentice's name on the wall there, on the monument there, and he did a scribble of that, and he put together a picture and an image and everything else because he was, he was hoping to honor this relationship that my dad had with his best friend who was lost, giving his life in service of our country. And when we say country, I think we have to realize that's us, right, in service of us. And so I say that because as we move into this holiday, we kind of have two different camps of people. We have the camp of people that when we talk about Memorial Day, that isn't just kind of something floating on the surface, but that hits directly to the heart because the losses of someone they know and love, right? And there's others of us that, that maybe that's not quite as close. And so here's what I would ask, okay? I'm going to pray in just a second over us, but first, my, my prayer for those that are when you think about Memorial Day, you don't have to think hard about the who of that. My prayer is that you would still, no matter how long it's been, you would have permission to grieve because this is a holiday centered around grief. For those of us that maybe don't have a name in that space, I pray that you would have a heart that opens. It says, who around me, who has God placed in my life that I can move towards? Because that is one of the callings of the Christian community is to move towards each other in pain and grief. And so during, as we celebrate and we have barbecues and we have fun together, I just pray that there's a depth to this holiday that we move into and embrace in this time and see, um, ask God for guidance as to who we love during this time. Amen? So let me pray for us um, and we'll move into the message. Heavenly Father, Lord, We lift up this holiday to you. We lift up those that have lost loved ones. We lift up those that have been lost, Lord. And we sit and we remember because remembering is part of honoring, Lord. And so I pray for a patience and a silence in our hearts, Lord, as we move into this weekend. We are are joyfully expectant as to what you're doing in this world, but we are willing, Lord, to stop long enough to listen and remember, especially to those next to us that are still hurting, Lord. We're so thankful to live in a country like this, and we're so thankful, Lord, for all of the sacrifices that have been given on our behalf. Lord, may us not take that for granted. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, 
Amen. Thank you so much for that. So let's jump in here today. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I need you to imagine at the very beginning of this. So I need you to like conjure up your imagination. Now I have a three-year-old at home and I get to witness each and every day him just taking two plastic dinosaurs and creating an entire world out of it. Conversation. He's having conversations between a T-Rex and a Triceratops, right? And, And maybe I'm different. Maybe I'm not like everyone else, but I think I am. That's the sort of thing that can easily kind of fall away from us as we get older and more mature and have responsibilities and everything else. And so I need you to conjure that up from the beginning. And here's what I need you to imagine. Imagine with me that you are an original disciple of Jesus. And let me paint the picture for that. Okay. Put yourself in that place. You had an encounter with Jesus where he called you out of your life. Right? And something about his presence and his teachings spoke to the deepest parts of you, calling, out, calling you out of a shallow existence and into something more. So you are one of the few that have traveled with him, been in the, the travels and the everyday, like walking along roads and having conversations by campfire at night. You have learned from him. You have seen miracles become reality. You have experienced him in a very real and deep way. See, this experience for you has been excruciatingly challenging and exhilarating at the exact same time. You have experienced the entire roller coaster, traveling the countryside and witnessing Jesus teach and heal. You have seen him be cheered on by the masses as Savior and King And you have also witnessed him be unjustly accused, arrested, and eventually brutally killed. You have feared for your own life, and you have felt the sting of his death and the sting of your hopes and dreams dashed as he lost his. And somehow in the depths of that place, You have also felt the elation as word of his resurrection went from rumor to reality. See, this is the journey that you have gone on that's taken us to this place. And in this place over the last, where we'll pick us us up in our story, you've spent the last several sacred weeks with the resurrected Jesus who is now readying you and the other disciples to be sent out to bring this message of the inbreaking kingdom of God to the world. This is the place we find ourselves in the book of Acts. So the book in the book of Acts, Luke tells us about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. In the book, we are with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who, who has just come back to life. And for weeks, the resurrected Jesus has been teaching these disciples about the kingdom of God. And this is the place where theory is about to become practice. It's one thing to be in the classroom and being taught about something. It's another to be thrust into that experience and live that out. And so that's where we're going to pick up our story in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Verse four, it says this. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, 
which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So stay where you are. We're doing this. We're teaching. I need you to stay right here. The Father has something that you need. See, the disciples hear this, and, and even if we were disciples' friends, we would do the same thing that they often do. Was we would meet Jesus' teachings with questions that kind of, like, miss it. Right, And so they ask questions of him. Right, They ask him, okay, so they neglect like what's going to happen through the Holy Spirit and in them. And they say, okay, is that going to be like the starting gun for when you're going to make the Romans go away? Because we as a nation have been living under oppression for some time now. And so we're really excited about that. And that's our expectation as to what you're going to do. Those dreams were dashed upon your death, but you've come back. And so now we still have that expectation. And none of us, by the way, have any expectations of, our, of Jesus in our life, right? We, as we look forward as to what he will do, none of us carry any of that. None of us, right? Now, this is just a, a group of wise people who have no complete self-control. Good? Okay. Um, we can relate to the disciples here. They're saying, this is what we want. And Jesus, when are you going to do it? Right? And this is Jesus' response. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Like, I didn't read that wrong, right? Jesus just shot into the clouds, right? The, the disciples have been training for this day, learning about what they need to, to do. Jesus gives them some direction and then just goes, right? And the clear direction that he's been given is this. Wait. <sighs> Am I the only one that doesn't do that well? Like, like if we had a spectrum here of, of zero to 10 and zero being uh, those of us in the room that don't wait very well or patiently or kindly or you fill in the blank of what other descriptive word needs to happen over here and 10 being like, I'm really patient and I'll wait as long as you need. Um, could it be that, like, when I first read this, I, I don't understand why God, Jesus and God aren't just like moving along and say, okay, you left, like, let's, let's go. And yet, something about waiting is important in this narrative. For, for the disciples to be ready to do the work that God has called them to do, waiting on God's provision and guidance and empowering is a huge aspect of that. So they wait, and they wait. And they wait. And in their waiting, they do some practical things. They uh, fill the open disciple position left by Judas. And it says this. It's been a few days now. It says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So all the disciples, they have stayed together. And they get to the day of Pentecost. Let's, let's help set the scene for that. For the Jewish people at that time, there were three major feasts a year to celebrate in remembrance and worship. 
Now, this important feast gets its name from the fact that it starts seven full weeks or exactly 50 days after the Passover feast. Since it takes place exactly 50 days after the previous feast, this feast is known as Pentecost, which means 50, just a practical name. Now, here's why this is important. The Feast of Weeks was in celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and required that the first fruit offerings be made at the temple as a way of expressing thanksgiving for God's provision. So pause for a second. Uh, are you guys' calendars like really in tune with the wheat harvest? No? Nobody here? Right? So this is one of those ideas when we're reading the Bible, we have to step into their story. There is a rhythm that God has created, right? For these people, the harvest seasons are everything, everything. There's nothing more important to that because that is their exact, that is their livelihood. And so God has created a rhythm inside of that to say in the midst, as you're, as you're gathering the harvest, you need to take the first fruits of that and you need to bring that and offer that because this was a way of recognizing that God has provided while also reinforcing an expectation that God will provide. So this is where we get to take this story and go back into ours. The practice of stopping and showing gratitude for and naming the ways that God has provided in our lives. I'm not just talking financially, but we can start there. Financially, relationally, spiritually, all of the above. Stopping and naming them as an act of worship, not only is worship, but also it does this other thing where it helps us move into the next season expecting that he will do it again. And so this is what they're doing. This is where we find the disciples at this point. They have been waiting for 10 days. What would you look like? Like at this point, what, like, like I don't think I would be, my wife knows this and, and 10 days, I don't wait 10 minutes for many things very well. And so 10 days, I would be pretty angsty. My body would be telling on me that I'm like ready to go, right? The disciples have been ready for 10 days for God to move. And then something happens. Verse two, it says this. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This goes back to the feast that they're celebrating right now. These people were coming and the city has swollen. Right? People have come. This is what you do as a good Jew Jewish person. And it says, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Now, has anyone ever looked up the word bewilderment before? Right? This word, the root of this word means to be taken out into the wild and left there so that you can find your way home. That's what's happening here. The, what's happening is so confusing that you, they don't understand what's happening. It says, because because each one heard their own language being spoken. We're going to unpack that. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Friends, this can't be understated, and it's easy to miss what's happening here. 
a miraculous event occurs and the disciples then go out among the people and they start speaking. Now, this isn't the crazy part. They've been training for this. They're like, just give me the people. I have the message from Jesus. This isn't the crazy part. Uh, to set the scene, I need to go backwards a little bit. Um, this last week, right, we had a celebration. My mom is, after many years of service in the school district, she's retiring this coming Tuesday. It's her last day. We're really excited in our family, right? And there was a celebration at the school that she works at this last week. And so we went right after school and, and just celebrated with her and her, the coworkers and everything. And here's the crazy thing. My mom works at a school I went to, Right. I haven't been there in years. And so I, we went there and this thing happens. I don't know if you've ever gone to the school that you went to, but like somebody like shoots it with a shrink gun. It just feels way smaller all of a sudden. And I went in and again, I don't know if you've ever gone to a place you haven't been in a while, especially one that you've spent a lot of time in. All these memories started flooding back to me. And as I walked in the front doors, the office and the library where we were going is to the left. And I looked over to the right and there's a cafeteria right there. And I remembered a lot of memories, right? Food being thrown, me being a punk, all of the above. But one of the things that flooded back that I haven't thought of in like 20 or 30 years is back when I was a middle schooler at that school, they had these things on the weekends called rip dances. Now, if any of you ever did like live locally and did these and you're like my age-ish, 40-ish, just come give me a high five if you ever went to one of these, right? But they created this space where there was these dances. And what I remember about these dances is they cleared out the entire cafeteria, all the tables, and they made a dance floor, except for if you've ever been to a middle school dance before, no one dances, they all break into their little groups on the side, right? Right, and so I was with my group and there'd be a group of five or six over there, a group of 10 over there, a group of three over here. And you're with your people, right? You're with your people that spoke your language. Now, we all spoke the same language there, but you, I think you know what I'm talking about. You get with your people because it's scary to connect with somebody that's not your people. This is the imagery I want you to see as you think about this, this Pentecost, this celebration that's happening. All the people have come from all over the world and they are separated here, but they are mostly separated because they don't speak the same language. We don't have any of the tools that we have right now to interpret that, so they're just kind of in their clusters. Now, this is the crazy thing that happens. The Holy Spirit comes in a miraculous way and out of that, the disciples go down and they go to share with the people. And as they go to the people, there's this gap between them and the people because they don't speak the same language. Something beautiful happens. They can. They not only share the same language, but they speak in the same dialect. Like I have a half sister who lives in Atlanta. She's lived in the South for years now, but she didn't grow up there. So somewhere along the way, every, like, is this a rule in the South? Like every sentence has to start with y'all. Like, I don't know. I never, I've only been there like once in my life, but she now starts almost every sentence with y'all, even when it's just us. Like, yeah, like I look around like it's not just us. Why are we saying that? Because that's the dialect. That's what's shared there. And this, I, I don't want us to miss this miraculous thing that's happening. What we're seeing is the boundaries that exist between human to human are not boundaries between God and human. And he's inviting us into the ability to speak directly, not just in language, but to people's hearts. And so that's what begins to happen. And it is crazy what happens. 
Let's talk about language for just a second because this can be a real barrier in between us. Think of how challenging language can be. I'm gonna say something um, that I think is the, maybe the deepest uh, profound thing I'll say all morning. Are you ready for this? Words are hard. Are they not? Like, how often is the conflict that we have based on my ability or inability to put the right words in the right sequence, in the right order, with the right tone, at the right time? And so God knows this, and he sees this, and he's moving in the midst of this. James speaks about this in his book. In chapter 3, he says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. Nobody here does that who have been made in God's likeness, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Fresh and salt. There's no salty worded people here. The Bible over and over and over again emphasizes how important language is in our communication, says we are to be a steward of it. And yet we see in this moment on top of that, on top of the difficulties we have, that God is moving through disciples and empowering them to speak a language that they don't speak. The disciples go out and I want you to envision 12 different church services happening in different languages. And the people recognize this, they're astonished, and they share. Verse 11, it says this, We hear them declaring the the wonders of God in our own tongues. This is the people speaking. Amazed and perplexed. I looked up that word this week. You know what perplexed means, sorry? Have you ever put your Christmas lights away in perfect order and then gotten them next year and thought, did someone go in my attic, right? And get, and get them out and tangle them before. The, the idea that they are completely tangled up and that, it, that you don't know how to untangle them, that's what the word perplex means. It says tangle, it's tangled up and it will take a methodical understanding to untangle. That's where they're at. Like my experience of life doesn't add up. I know those are Galileans right there and they don't speak my language and somehow they just preached an amazing service with me and they said y'all even, right? It says, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? And I love this. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine, right? Because <laughs> they're speaking a language that they shouldn't be able to speak. Now, in this play- place, I want you to envision, man, go back to school days when the teacher goes away and the substitute comes, how like, like the, the power hierarchy just changes, Well, in the absence of Jesus, we have Peter, our brash and passionate Peter. He's come to the rescue, or at least he thinks so. And he's going to to do what he's called to do. He's going to speak on behalf of the disciples. He begins to speak, and he begins with my favorite defense of the faith statement in the entire Bible. See, after 10 days of waiting, some of us in here, you know that like, Waiting 10 minutes to speak is a really hard thing. And Peter is one of these people. He's ready to share. He finally has the opportunity he's been waiting for, empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Father has given. And this is what he starts with. Verse 14, then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, everyone, 
Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. I don't want to think there, there was a pause here. All right, and he's got the message, the gospel message ready, and yet this is how he starts. These people are not drunk. It's only nine in the morning, all right? Can we admit that if a preacher stands up and starts to share and they have to clarify whether or not they're drunk, that's not a great start for the message? <laughs> Thankfully, Peter continues because Peter's been trained for this. And he speaks directly to the hearts of the people. And when he does, he reads from the prophet Joel in chapter two. And he shares a passage that culminates in the phrase, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So because Peter is a skilled uh, uh, preacher. And he knows that I have to speak the language, I have to speak the native tongue of the people. I've come to share the message of Jesus, but they don't speak Jesus. See, they speak Old Testament, so I'm going to read from this scroll, and this scroll is going to point to Jesus. And by reading this, I point to the idea that everyone knows, which is someone is Lord. Someone is in charge. And Peter knows, I'm going to introduce these people to who's in charge. Verse 22, he goes on and he starts to share about Jesus. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You've seen this. Word has spread about this Jesus, but let me clarify who he is. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, this may be native language for us as Christ followers, but it's not for these people. This is new language to them. And Peter doubles down on this by speaking next to the language that every Jewish person would speak, which is the words of King David. And he says this in verse 25. David said about him, about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Why is David not shaken? It's not David in his power. It is because he has this Jesus. And Peter goes on to declare that King David, the giant of their faith, even he died and stayed dead. But this Jesus is above all, even David, and he has conquered death. Let's go back into our stories for a second. This is, this is, we're getting to witness a really strong sermon at this point because he's preaching their language. And one of the things I'm thankful for, I put time and effort and energy into sharing a message like this, but one of the things I'm incredibly thankful for is knowing that the Holy Spirit goes beyond my words. Like the message that's going on here is not just dependent, thank the Lord, on my abilities that God is continually speaking into our hearts and cutting beneath just the words and finding that deep place in you that he needs to speak to, the place that needs to be loved and cared for and seen. And that's what's happening in this message. See, God cuts be beneath that. He clarifies in verse 33, Peter says, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. See, God is doing all of this. 
this miraculous thing. He is doing this, not us. He gets the glory. And then Peter brings the big guns and he says this in verse 36. He says, therefore, now pause for a second, pastoral kind of Bible study tool for a second. Some of us know this. If we see the word therefore in the Bible, there's a phrase that we say, anyone know it? Some of us weren't that confident that you had the right answer, right? When we see therefore, we say, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? I, I'm passionate about this idea. We live in a Google-heavy world, do we not? Right? The Bible was not meant to be read verse by verse, but entire section by section. So whenever we see the word therefore, we should read above. We should say, do, did I understand or did I read the passage before it? Because this is a summary of that, Right? And I don't want to be a lazy or shallow person that just reads the summary of things. And so Peter says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. That's everyone. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. These are churchy, Christiany words. Let's talk about that. Lord, this is Peter saying he is ruler, he is boss, and he is master of your entire life. So you cannot be Lord of a part. He must be given control of the entire life. This would have been kind of a mic drop moment in that message to say, they understand what it means for someone to be in charge. And Peter's saying, Jesus is above all those in charge. Now this amazing thing happens because it's a simple message says this in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Something happened in these words, in this combination of words speaking their language, where the Holy Spirit interpreted that they said, not only am I hearing this, but I know it requires some sort of action step. It isn't just knowledge that I'm cataloging somewhere in my brain. It means my life has to shift out of this. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will, will call. A couple of really simple yet complex commands, repent and be baptized. My favorite definition for the word repent just means to change your mind. Now let's clarify that though, because there's a lot of things that you can change your mind on. And what this means that as you change your mind, the change needs to mean that your life becomes more centered on his ways and his will. All right? It isn't just, I used to think this and now I think this. It's, I used to think this way and now I submit my thinking, my, my belief system to Jesus and I give it over to him, and I'm willing to change my mind about, you fill in the blank, forgiveness, grace, how I see myself, how I see others, what's most important in this world. I give that over, and I'm willing to change my mind and alter my behaviors because of this. One of the core foundations of the idea of repentance is this word. That, can we just name that this is an icky word for a lot of us, this word confession? Ugh, right? If I just gave you some kind of church homework and said, hey, you're to go confess, most of you would be like, I didn't hear that later on. 
because it's not fun. Some of us have backgrounds in Catholicism, and so the idea or the, the imagery of confession is I'm going to bring my brokenness before someone who somehow is like more holy, and I just need to bring the junk of my life to them and confess it, and, and that's it, and then it's somehow gone. That's, that's not the idea of confession. My favorite definition of confession is confession is simply telling God the truth. See, what if that was your homework? What if you, you entered into a process where there was a commitment to say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to withhold anything from him. I'm going to tell him the truth about everything. These are three of my favorite questions when it comes to confession. Simple as this. You start with one question. What am I seeing? Like from this vantage point in my life, in this place, what, what is the landscape to which I see? How am I being affected by reality? What's going on in my job and my family and my friendships and the circumstances, all of the above? What am I seeing that's in front of me? Name it. The work of naming, we've already talked about the beauty and complexity of language. The work of naming is one of the most important things we can ever do. Put language to what you're seeing in your life. What am I seeing? Second question, what am I feeling? And so in light of what I'm seeing, what's coming up inside of me? Let's begin to be aware. So many of us operate in a place of fear or anxiety consistently without ever naming it. And because we do so, it just feels normal. Yet it was not how we were ever created to live. So we, again, need to do the work of naming it. And in light of what I'm seeing and what I'm feeling, I ask the question, what am I believing? Like in light of that, what, what, do, I, what do I think about God and faith? Who is Jesus and what do I believe about others and what do I believe about myself? When Peter says, repent, this is some of the work that is to be done. And one of the reasons I want to camp in this for a second is because it's not just a one-time thing, friends. This is a continual posture that we have with God. We tell him the truth and we see what his Holy Spirit does inside of us. The second command is this, be baptized. To be baptized is to have a physical experience, to be completely dunked into water and brought out of water, a physical experience and a representation of what has occurred inside of you. It means I have given Jesus control of my life, that my old life is dead, it has gone underneath the waters, and I come out, I mirror Jesus' life where he, de- he died and was resurrected. My old life is gone and my new life is here, and it is rooted in him. Peter says, everyone should be baptized. See, friends, when this happens inside of us, and this is kind of the, one of the hard, kind of let's have an honest conversation for a second. As we're wrestling our way towards Jesus, as we're moving towards relationship with him, and we're bringing in some, one of my favorite words Danny talks about all the time, this curiosity. I just want to clarify, though, this curiosity that we bring will always bring us to a, a moment and a decision. Is Jesus Lord of my life? And if you've made that decision, then the command that we see in scripture is that that decision is to be shown and shared. 
Now, that doesn't mean that decision means you have to have all theology figured out or everything that was tangled has become untangled. That's not it. It's just that the message of this Jesus resonates in the deepest part of me, and that is true to me, and I want to follow him with my life. And so that's why baptism is such an important sacrament in what we do. Now, tiny plug on the side here. We have a baptism and worship service coming up on July 9th, right? Just a little bit down the road. I, I know without knowing that there are people in this room right now, people listening as well, that have said yes to Jesus as Lord, but never made the next step of showing and sharing that faith. And I pray that there's a Holy Spirit conviction in us that asks the question. Now, again, this isn't a high pressure sale. It's just... Is that something that maybe we need to go tell God the truth about and see what he speaks into our heart? See, Peter is sharing this and he's saying you need to repent and be baptized. You need to have an expression of this faith because we see this in the life of the disciples. The Holy Spirit that dwells in us empowers us and we are called to live in this way as Jesus is our center. One of my favorite authors says this about this risky risky idea of empowering. He says, here is one of the great acts of love, empowering another person, knowing full well that that person will probably make serious mistakes with that power, knowing that those mistakes may be costly even to the one who does the empowering. This is what God does through us. He gives us power and authority before we deserve it. Anyone with kids or grandkids knows exactly what this means. Just yesterday, my son um, wanted to go ride his bike all the way across town, and I promised I just wanted to grab him and turn him back into a three-year-old, my oldest. He's 13. And there's a, but this idea, he's old enough to have this freedom now, but there's a part of me that doesn't want to give it because it's scary. Things can happen. And yet the act of empowering is always going to feel risky, and that's exactly what God does through his Holy Spirit in us. See, I'm calling you into this mission even before you're ready. Something about this message, the text stated that these people were cut to the heart. Now in the Greek, this word heart means the center of our being. In other words, they heard this message in the deepest parts of who they are. in the deepest parts of who we are. I know that as I say that, many of us relate to that. There's been a time, maybe it's now, there's been a time in your life where it didn't matter the eloquence of the words that were given, but the message of the gospel was there before you and it cut through all the surface level stuff and it got to the center of you and it helped to re, uh, uh, realign your priorities and what matters in this life. See, something about this message of Jesus spoke to the deepest part of them. Let me share about experience I just had. Um, recently, some of our pastoral team just went to a local conference, and these just tend to be really beautiful experiences. They're refreshing experiences where we get to just go sit in a service like this and not lead anything and just be um, kind of in the room there. And one of the things that was shared is we focused on the idea of Psalm 42. And in this psalm, there's this imagery that is given. The imagery is given that is King David writing in that he is in the waves. And the waves on the surface, they are overwhelming. 
This is one of those times where we can take this imagery and go into our own lives and saying, I, I know without knowing that we have waves on the surface of our lives that are overwhelming right now. That is not something I have to question. That's happening right now. And from this place, as David is in the waves on the surface, he says this phrase. See, he is longing to find God from that place. Is this deep calls to deep. What he says is the deepest part of me from this circumstance, from this place, the deepest part of me, I want to push past the things that are grabbing my attention. And the deepest part of me longs to connect God with the deepest part of you. I want that. I want that in my soul. I want to find a different way to connect with you because all I see is the waves right now. See, this is the message that Peter is bringing. This is the message throughout the entire Bible is that there is a deeper part of life that we are called into. And the crazy trajectory of it, though, is because we are in the waves of life. And again, I hope that in your own personal prayer time, as you tell God the truth, that you name what the waves are right now. Whatever those are, see, we want to be yanked above them. And actually, what God wants to do is yank us below. And says, you can find me here. In the deepest part of you, that's where I want to speak to. If we can quiet what's going on in your world and in your life, God has a way of cutting through and speaking to the deepest part of us. Here's the thing. If there's a deepest part of me, there's a shallowest part of me too. Many of us live there. Many of us get stuck in that place. When I talk about the shallowest part of us, let's start with going back to our topic of just language. How often is our language back and forth just surface level, shallow things? How often when I'm talking to someone, is it easy to forget that this person, no matter who they are, is someone created in the image and likeness of God? Instead, how often can I just focus on what's at the surface and I speak to that? Let's speak to marriages for just for a second or close relationships. How often is it easy when someone else speaks out of their shallow to me for for then me to feel permission to, to bring it back on that level? And yet the idea of this is that I am to be anchored in the deepest way to God, that even as those next to me are pulled to the surface, I can be an anchor to them because I am anchored to the one that doesn't move. And so as I speak, as someone brings the worst of their language, their life or their experience to me, I don't need to be tossed by the waves because I'm connected in a deeper place. I can see them and I can love them and none of their behavior. Again, this isn't mean that people get to behave. However, it's that I can see deeper. I can ask, I can bring curiosity as to why someone is operating in this way. This is the place that we are called into. One of the last things they said at that conference that has stuck with me is this speaking of the idea of a native language or a native tongue. It's that God's native tongue is a whisper. So friends, as we come together and we long to hear from him, and I pray again that this Holy Spirit is interpreting these words and speaking directly to the deepest parts of you. Can we acknowledge, though, that if we're just wanting to get in a loud room and let 
God shout over it, that's not how he normally does it. It it means that I have to quiet myself. Sometimes it means I have to wait and wait and wait far beyond what I'm comfortable with. And yet the promises is the Holy Spirit will come and will empower. So as we come to a close here today, a couple of things. God's native tongue is a whisper and a whisper is difficult to hear and hard to discern, but carries no less significance. God's whisper tends to be equal parts enlivening and terrifying and never graduate this. I think that's why some of us avoid it in the first place is because it will be both bring me life and send me in a direction that I'm not fully prepared for and God is completely fine with that. My hope as we close this time is I'm, I'm gonna spend a few minutes praying and our worship team's gonna come out is that we spend some time asking some clear questions. What is the deepest part of God speaking to the deepest part of you right now? Is it about you and your identity and who you are amidst the circumstances? Is it maybe highlighting someone that's next to you that you're seeing in a way that is different than he sees and maybe he's pulling you down and that's really scary to do because it feels like injustice on some levels to do so and yet that's where he's pulling you. The story that we read and the reason I chose it for this Sunday is because what's happening there wasn't just happening there. This Holy Spirit is speaking now. Do you believe it? So here's what I want to do. We're going to spend just a a few seconds listening and I'm going to pray for us. And as we close with worship, we're going to trust that this same God is speaking to us now and not just us, but you and me. He's bringing guidance and encouragement and support and invitations to confession and repentance. And he's often sending us to action steps as to what we are to do next. So here's what I like to do. I would, I would invite you to just close your eyes for a second. Wherever you're sitting right now, would you just take a deep breath? Envisioning that you are breathing out noise. You're breathing out the shallow that doesn't eternally matter. where we are right now, Lord, we fix our eyes on you. It feels important to say right now, Lord, that I think they're coming out of a shame, a shame series. I think some of us still wrestle with as we fix our eyes on you, Lord, that we struggle to see kindness in those eyes. 
pray that that's what's handed over today. That there is a trust and a knowing that this God that whispers deep to deep is speaking to us and he's bringing us to love and grace and kindness and to calling and to purpose. So in this place, we listen, Lord. May you make your message clear. May there be a bravery and a courage in this room where people are willing to stop and wait on your guidance and your empowering. And then once it comes, Lord, maybe, may they be willing to go wherever you lead, Lord. May your spirit fall afresh on us today. Just as it did then. Lord, we love you. We listen for you. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. Spirit, come in.
Sunday. God bless.